Good morning, Grace DC. Our scripture reading this morning will be from Galatians 5, 16 through 25. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Greetings, Grace DC and friends. Pastor Glenn Hoberg here, and I'm glad to be with you on this Sunday morning and this worship service. Spring is one of the best times in Washington, D.C. The trees, the flowers, the colors, the fragrance. If you came to D.C. in the dead of winter, you'd never imagine all the blooms that the spring brings. And it's really a good picture of the work of God's Spirit in the lives of believers. He is committed to blooming us with the moral beauty of Jesus Christ. And yet, like cultivating a garden, it's work. The world is full of weeds and disease and thorns and thistles. And there's a lot of effort given in examining and pruning and nurturing, as it is with spiritual growth. We're not to be passive, we're not to fertilize the dark desires, as our passage tells us. Yet we're also not to approach fruit, spiritual growth, as if it's the fruit of our effort alone. And this is really the big difference between the world's approach to moral change and spiritual change and the Christian approach. Although that worldly approach seeps its way into our hearts and lives, And so we need to continue to study about the way God, the Holy Spirit, bears fruit in our lives. And I want to do that by looking at two different points. The first is recognizing the fruit of the Spirit, and the third is cultivating the fruit of the Spirit. So first of all, recognizing the fruit of the Spirit. My family just re-watched, probably for the third time, the trilogy of the Lord of the Rings films. And if you're familiar with those films, in the second one, the creature Gollum has this battle between his good self and his bad self. After Frodo reminds Gollum that his name was once Smeagol and he was once not so different than a hobbit, he begins to soften. He begins to long to be free from this evil side that has developed under the power of the ring. But it's that point the conflict begins. And it really is an illustration of what it feels sometimes to be a Christian 
a war between two natures in us, a sinful nature and the nature that God has now redeemed by his grace. But just like Gollum didn't feel the conflict until Frodo showed up, we don't feel it until Jesus shows up in our lives. As long as we're giving in to sin, evil is glad to let us just float along the river till we go over the waterfall. Yet once the Holy Spirit introduces us to Jesus Christ and makes his home inside of us, we then begin to feel the conflict. A conflict that our passage says is between the flesh and the spirit. And by flesh, it doesn't mean primarily the physical part of us, but rather the part that is yet renewed by the Holy Spirit. The book of Ephesians would call it the old self and the new self. Or maybe we could say say the God-desiring part of us and the sin-desiring part of us. And that word desire is a key word. Now, in some old translations, it's translated lust of the flesh, but that's probably too narrow because it seems to just indicate sexual sin. The Greek word is best understood as over-desire. Maybe the way that we use the word obsessed. When we say someone's obsessed with their job or their kid's well-being or their marriage or being married. Over-desire. And it's not that these are bad things but rather they're good things that have taken on too much importance. They've become a small g God. And so as the New Testament speaks of desire, it's the same way it describes idolatry in the Old Testament. And what it produces is rotten fruit, fruit of the flesh. And our passage gives us uh, eight words, but really four categories of this fruit of the flesh. The first one we could say is sexual over-desire. Now, modern society understands the pleasure of sex, but not the meaning of it. That physical, emotional, and spiritual is all bound together. More so that the oneness and intimacy that we experience in sexual intimacy is intended actually to point beyond the couple and beyond ourselves. It's meant to point to the union between God and his people. This is why the Bible likens a relationship with God as a marriage covenant, and says that Jesus Christ is the groom and believers are the bride. And so when the book of Genesis talks about the man and woman entering into a covenant and becoming one flesh, it's actually acting out something spiritually that should be happening. Sexual intimacy is actually a sign and seal of the marriage covenant. And to ignore that results in bad fruit. It might result in what Paul says, sexual immorality. That's sex that is without a covenant, without that commitment between a man and a woman. Or impurity, unnatural desire. Or sensuality, uncontrolled sexual desire. These fail to image the purpose for which sex was given. The second category is religion. Now, in Paul's day, it was mostly pagan temples and idolatry and witchcraft is mentioned. But at the heart of it is this desire to covet the power of God, to be on God's level, to control my life and control power that way. When God admonishes Israel for turning to pagan fortune-telling practices, it wasn't because they didn't work or they were fake. It was because they were failing to look to him for their future. The third category gets into attitudes, like selfish ambition. When we're consumed with with achieving some standard, maybe it's getting straight A's, maybe it's some athletic goal we have, maybe it's career. When we find that we need to do that and we can't, we find ourselves angry. 
And then when we see someone else enjoying that, <laughs> that uh, talent or that ability, we become jealous and envy. And that can result in rivalry, rivalry and division. All these things go together as we look at the attitudes of bad fruit. And then finally, we might put the fourth category of substance abuse. As he mentions, drunkenness and orgies. And the orgies isn't sexual in nature. It's actually referring to drinking parties. So here we're talking about addiction to pleasure-creating substances and behavior. And the passage says that those that walk, those whose lives are built around these things, those who have made these things a habit, to persist in it, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, historically in the church, we've made a big deal about the first and the last one, sexual sin and drinking, but it's important to see that things like envy and divisiveness and jealousy are just as damning. Now, in contrast to that bad fruit, we then turn to the fruit of the Spirit, recognizing that. And here there's two bigger ideas we need to get in our mind. The first is the fruit of the Spirit is balanced and symmetrical. You find that they grow together. After all, it's not the fruits, plural, of the Spirit. It's the fruit, singular. And this provides a good check for ourselves. For instance, uh, someone might be a naturally joyful and bubbly person, but they're not reliable and faithful. Well, that would probably show us that the joy wasn't fruit of the Spirit. It was probably just temperament. Or someone maybe is, appears steady and faithful, but they're not kind. Again, it's likely that that steadiness isn't of the Spirit, because uh, you would also find kindness. It guards us from confusing personality and temperament for the fruit of the Spirit. But second of all, just because we have gifts of the Spirit doesn't mean we have fruit of the Spirit. You can think about King Saul, who had gifts, but not much fruit, or Judas the betrayer, or the Corinthian church, that Paul said, you have all these gifts, but you lack love. And that's a transition into us understanding what the fruit of the Spirit is. First, we're, mentioned, we're given mention of agape love, the same word that we find when it says God demonstrates his love for sinners, that while we were powerless, he hands over unconditionally his very own son. So the fruit of this love is not based on attraction or usefulness or condition. It's the unconditional love that we learn from God. Then he talks about joy and delight. The scripture says that we should delight in the Lord and he'll give us the desires of our heart. That reminds us that we're to love the blesser ahead of the blessing. And also, an ability to be joyful apart from the circumstances that we want in our lives. And then fruit shows itself in peace, the ability to rest and be confident in the wisdom of God rather than our own control. It's the opposite of anxiety. Next, the fruit of patience, the ability to face trouble without blowing up or losing your head. Fruit expressed in kindness. This is the practical expression, not just that I have feelings, but I actually do deeds. And then the fruit of faithfulness, that I'm the same person in every situation or who I'm with, that I can be reliable. Then the fruit, gentleness and humility, being other-centered and not self-absorbed, empathetic. And then the last, the, the fruit of self-control, the ability to put myself on hold and pursue what is right and important. Now, if we had time, we could take uh, time and see how these cross-pollinate together. But this fruit basket or bouquet 
is what believers are as the Spirit works. But how does it grow? We mentioned that we do participate in the growth. That moves us to cultivating. Have you ever gone apple picking or blueberry picking or strawberry picking and you get close to the tree and you can hear it groaning, struggling to push out its fruit? Well, of course you don't. You don't hear that. Or have you ever seen a plant that's dead and you think, well, I'll just take a, a bud and a flower from a healthy plant and tape it onto this one and that'll make it alive. That would be a foolish thing to do. But this is often how we approach character development and spiritual development. We think, well, I'm just going to groan and double down and that'll produce fruit. Or I'll just take one new habit in my life and that'll be make me new. This is part of what it means to live under the law, as we're told. Now, one of the striking and surprising things in this passage is that when Paul contrasts the spirit and the flesh, the law is on the side of the flesh, on the bad list. We think, well, wait a second, isn't God's law good? Yes. But for what good has it been given? You know, a GPS map, navigation, is a good thing to show you how to get somewhere. But if you sit in your car and expect that actually to turn on the car and fuel the car and move the destination, you're going to be disappointed. Well, the law is a picture of love, faithfulness, and justice, but it doesn't produce those things. No more than a dictionary definition of a strawberry is actually a living strawberry. You see, someone who's living under the moral law thinks that by obeying these things, it'll cause inner transformation. But it was never given for that purpose. Sometimes we use the language of misuse of data, using information for the wrong purpose. And maybe, for you, it's not even the standard of the Bible. Maybe it's the standard of the culture. Being a good parent, according to D.C. terms, or having the right body, according to our culture, or the right, right balance of wearing a mask or not wearing a mask. Whatever standard that becomes the basis of our self-worth and acceptance before God and others, that's the law that we live under. And what's even more surprising and enlightening when we actually live according to those laws and we think it's a good thing, it produces the opposite. It produces bad character. That's the logic here. Paul is saying if walking by the Spirit won't lead to the flesh, walking by the law will lead to the flesh. But it's all how we use the law. This makes sense. Think about it for a second. If, if you are gripped into a standard-chasing mentality, it will eventually compromise your character if you have to have that standard. For instance, if you don't live up to the standard, you don't live up to the test of life, one of the ways you might deal with it is drinking too much or numbing yourself through sexual relationship. Or if you're driven to reach some standard, maybe again it's straight A's or to please your parents or to make it in D.C., when someone blocks that, the bad fruit of anger and strife will show up. And again, envy, we set ourselves against other people at that point. If we can't beat them, we'll become their rivals. You see, living under the standard and the law just creates more bad fruit. This is why they're on the same side. But this is how the fruit of the Spirit is different. You see, as the Holy Spirit plants you in the rich soil of Christ, and all that involves, as we abide in Jesus Christ, who is the vine of God, as we spend time cultivating the garden of God's graces, it bears fruit in our lives. How? 
Well, the law changes from being a, you know, a thorn bush or a whomping willow that'll toss you and crush you with its branches. It actually becomes a trellis. You know, a trellis is one of those things we set up to help shape the growth of plants. It helps us shape our growth. You see, as the Holy Spirit turns over the soil of our, you know, our hearts, and we come to see that God so loved us with an everlasting love, a love without limits, without walls and ceilings, what happens? The fruit of love begins to grow. Or when the Holy Spirit waters the seed that we belong to Christ, verse 24, that we're adopted, that the Father delights in us, well, then the fruit of joy begins to grow. And when the Holy Spirit shows us the landscape and design of salvation, that before the foundation of the world, God set his love upon me, and he has plans to prosper and harm me, uh, prosper and not harm me, and he will save me to the uttermost. When all those things are in our mind, the fruit of peace begins to grow. And when the Holy Spirit showers us with the good gifts of God, the fruit of kindness begins to grow. When we are led by the Spirit to the garden of graces, this is how fruit grows. And it doesn't stop with us. In the city, there are a lot of community gardens. Maybe you're part of one, right? Where there's a big plot of land and each person gets a, a square to develop. Well, each believer is like a garden. And as all these gardens are lined up together, what happens? Well, the city becomes more alive. The city begins to bloom with humility, gentleness, righteousness, justice. Now, it happens gradually. You and I rarely notice when a plant grows a millimeter, but it is inevitable, gradual but inevitable. Friends, the springtime of your fruit is only just begun because the Holy Spirit living in you and I will produce the fruit of Christ. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you that you've prepared good works in advance for us to do. We thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit. We thank you that uh, we don't have to uh, strive, guilt ourselves, uh, fret ourselves into producing fruit. Would you do this work in us in Christ's name? Amen.